Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning. So glad that you're joining us here this morning. Want to say hello to everyone in Port Perry, Bowmanville, and whoever's watching in and around the world. We're so glad you're with us also. We're in the middle of this series out of Daniel, and the whole purpose of us going through Daniel is to wrestle down how do we as seekers or followers of Jesus Christ continue to thrive in exile when we are now living in a post-Christian, de-Christian environment where we are moved from the center to the margins, and apathy and hostility is growing all around us. What do we do, and how do we wrestle this down? And we've been learning that we are called to be praying for the city and praying for the new Canada, as we call it, and, and involved and not running away and not building some monument hoping this all passes by, being involved in every place and space and proclaiming Jesus and being great neighbors and being great citizens and finding the bridges that God has given in and through people. And yet, what happens when we are trying to walk across bridges and the neighbor or the friend or the family member or the government decides to burn the bridge from the other side? What happens that even though you're a good citizen and you're loving and you're involved, what happens when culture or family decides, no, we've had enough of what you believe, and they begin to burn the bridge? What do you do? And that is where we enter back into where we were last week in Daniel 3. Some more time had passed and there seemed to be peace. God's people were involved in society, praying, building up, involved in the nation called Babylon. They were involved but different, good citizens, good workers at all levels of government, But then another dangerous moment came for God's people trying to thrive in exile. The king who went back and forth, benevolent, kind, bitter, and killer, chooses to do something in his mind that will bring unity, purity, and momentum across his whole movement. And this unintentional act will place God's very people in the crosshairs once again. Let me start where Sunder did last week in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high, and he set it up on the plain of Dura. Uh, in the province of Babylon. Then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language. This is what you are commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound uh, of the horn and flute and zether and lyre and harp and pipe and all kinds of music. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. So the king demands obedience of all the officials that have gathered there that oversaw and ran the empire he has created. Now notice, as the false worship starts, all the representatives of all the nations would as one person at one moment bow down and fall down and would physically demonstrate that this image is more powerful and more important than them, their gods, or their history. A sea of bowing powerful people would ensure loyalty, unity, and in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, right worship. The state had become God, and God had become the state. And as we heard last week, three young adults, young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, decided not to obey. At the moment of false worship, they, tre- they chose true worship, and the gloves came off, and the king threatened them. They could actually see physically in front of them the terrible punishment waiting on them if they did not obey. The furnace was there. It was built to build the statue. Being burned alive is a terrifying prospect. They had good jobs, good looks, good money, good access, and now everything is at stake. Now, the king gave them a chance to compromise, a chance to deal with the humiliation that they had brought on his gods, his system, and his personhood. 
And they simply replied, we heard this last week in verse 16, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. This is not some young adult being hubris-based or arrogant. This is a matter of fact. In the face of the most powerful man on earth, in front of all the governmental officials, in front of all of their colleagues and friends, they could see, smell, and hear the crackling killing, and yet they chose to obey God. They chose that the Ten Commandments were more important than their own lives. Hear the Second Commandment, Exodus 24. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. In other words, this is what they declared. God has loved us. We have loved God. We will obey God. We will obey God's word and we will not obey you. And then they declared these profound words. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now, Sunder didn't go here last week, but let me do this because it matters. In the original language, this can be read not one way, but two ways. It can, first of all, be read the way we just heard it. Our God is able to save us. The other way can be read as this way, if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Either way, in other words, they're saying we're not sure if God can save us, or yes, we are sure that God can save us, but in either direction, we will not bow down. I love the complexity of this, the doubt of this, the question. The point is, here is this, that the God of heaven, the God who is sovereign, the God of the Jews, he might save us, he might not save us, he might be able to save us, he might not, able, not be able to save us. We, of course, know he is. But in that moment, are they unsure? But they say, we will submit to God and not you. We will not submit to any God. We will not submit to any other religious experience. We will not submit to any other governmental system. And then they said, but even if our God does not save us, we want you to know, your king, your, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Now this is where we stopped last week, and it's right here, right now, that the king becomes unglued. Irrational, triggered, angry, this personal insult by these young, insolent, young adults now moves him to violence. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. In the original language, there's a play on words here that's brilliant. It says literally his face, the image of his face began to change. It's a playoff of the image sitting out there and him reflecting it. The king is unglued, crazy, out of control, foaming at the mouth. No one could stop him. His word is law, and he looks at the large furnace with the huge hole on top and the side windows for stoking the fire, and in a royal fit of rage, he said to these three young adults you have made this mess and you will die for crossing me so the fire is out of control and the king is out of control and the young men have no control and the governmental officials cannot control and everything seems to be spinning out of control and notice who thinks he is in control the king his image his face his fire his commands his army his government his soldiers his slaves well so enraged he ordered the furnace heated up seven times hotter than usual and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these young men wearing the robes, trousers, turban, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace." 
So the torture and execution begins. They are tied up and dragged off to the top of this furnace. It is so unbelievably hot, it kills off some of the king's best soldiers. More victims, by the way, of the king's pride, the king's anger, the king's rage, his blind fury. And yet the king, who lost a few soldiers, who cares, could at least start to declare that these three disruptive young Jews are dead, and now we can get back to unity and conformity to the state. But as the best and most loyal die on the outside, something profound, jaw-dropping, and supernatural, something totally unexpected happens on the inside. Off his throne, shocked and overwhelmed, making sure that he wasn't the only one seeing this, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Look, I see, he says, I see four walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like one of the sons of gods, of the gods. They're thrown into a burning fire, and they're alive, and not just alive, and laying there, they're walking around on coal and wood. They're not bound at all. They are free, unharmed. All the pain and death and agony and loss they were expecting is replaced by comfort, being free. But there's now a fourth one who's added to the mix. And the king confesses it looks like one of the son, a son of the gods. Now, this is not a confession of a pagan king of Jesus, son of God. The king says this looks like an angel or a deity or a supernatural being. But even that confession of a pagan king does give us insight. Never forget that the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, he had said, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. So here's the question. Who's the fourth person in the fire with the three others? Many believe it was an angel sent by God to spare them and do this supernatural act. Many more believe he is more than an angel, including myself, I believe this. Actually, the fourth person in the fire is not an angel. It's not another human being. It's God himself. It's actually Jesus before the manger. See, Jesus has never been created. He is the second person of the Trinity. He has always been. Can anyone just say amen to that? So important. So this has already happened. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God, just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that God himself with two angels came and sat with Abraham and spoke. The pre-incarnate Jesus sat with Abraham, walked with Adam and Eve, and now stands in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What is this already pointing to? God with us. God in the fire with us. God who will never leave us. God who will never forsake us. God who will be with us to the very end of the age. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of that blazing furnace and shouted, Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And it says that the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw the fire had not harmed their body. Not a hair on their head was singed, their robes not scorched, there was no smell of fire on them. So they come out of the fire, and the king's rage and the fire itself had no power on them, not burned them, there was no smell of fire. One actually wrote they were unharmed, unscorched, and even unscented. And notice this, all the influencers in the most powerful nation in its time. Not just the king, all those who run his kingdom, the best of the best, the smartest, the brightest, the scientists, the governors, everyone are there, and they witness from these three young adults that the Jewish God, the God Most High, is who he claims to be, and he's firmly in control. 
God chose the courage of three young men who chose to stand to witness to the king, to witness to the government, and witness to the known world that God was still firmly in control and he could be known. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then said these amazing words. He, He had a turn of heart, let's just say that. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now again, this king, for a third time in Daniel, calls the Jewish god the most high god or god of gods. Now this king isn't becoming some monotheist where he's like, all my stuff is fake and this is real. He's actually saying, no, I worship my gods and the power behind our idols. But the king says something so interesting. The Jewish God seems to be more powerful and higher than all the other gods. Their God seems more powerful, more present. Their God seems to be more in control, seems to have power over historical events. He must remove, brings up and down kings. He brings people in and out. He now must be considered the chief God among all gods. And then he says these words, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego will be cut into pieces. Their houses will be turned into piles of rubber, for rubble, not rubber, rubble, for no other God can save in this way. I would never want to work for this guy. He is a psycho. But what is absolutely amazing is this, that the king turns and he declares what? That the God that I thought I defeated and the people I defeated actually are not defeated at all. It seems there's a greater power here even than me. In other words, what he's declaring is the God of the Jews must be added to the pantheon of our own gods. But something that many of us miss that we need to catch is this. The king himself does not worship God. Do you notice that? The king does not actually make other people worship God. He gives no command to build a temple to this God or hire priests for this God. There is no doubt now in his mind that this God is a serious player and must be honored and and shown respect, but he does not himself become a follower. So here's the question as we're wrestling this down. We who live in the new Canada, we who live in Durham in the GTA, we who are in this growing moment of exile, what are we learning Well, this passage is incredibly important to us. Sunder started it last week, and I'm going to now end it. And it's so incredibly important, and here's why. It's not just teaching us something. It's actually preparing us for something. Why has God given us this passage? Why did God lead us to Daniel this year? Here's the reason why. Because what God is training us to prepare for is actually coming and cannot be avoided. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the example Remember what we've heard time and time again. We are called to love and live within the city that God has placed us, but we are also called to stand when needed. We've heard this all through this series. We thrive in exile as Christians by praying for our city, joining the city, being part of the city, loving the city, being that great neighbor, a good citizen. We do not retreat. I love what Paul said during the time of Nero, who also was a psycho dictator, and he wrote these words in Romans 13, 7. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, oh, you pay taxes. If you owe revenue, oh, then you give them revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And he's referring to the emperor. 
Respect every single person you meet. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, you respect everyone, all people, people of different religions, different politics, different views, different moralities, different sexualities. You choose, because every human being is made in the image of God, to treat them with respect and dignity. You choose to be a great citizen and a great neighbor because Jesus has modeled that for us. You treat them the way you would want to be treated. I love what Bob Goff said this week. There is a difference between good judgment and living in judgment. Isn't that, can I read it again? There is a difference between good judgment and living in judgment. But does this mean, as followers of Jesus, the same God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, now revealed full, fully through Jesus, does that mean that we have to agree, justify, believe in, and support how every other person believes and acts? Not at all. See, the great golden idol in Canada is now what we call redefined tolerance. Tolerance used to mean in the West, I am civil with you, though I don't agree with you. I respect you, but I don't need to affirm your life, your thoughts, or your worldview. We can handle the tension because we have chosen to live in a pluralistic culture. Respect you, yes. Agree with you, no. Would you like a Tim Hortons now? That's what tolerance used to mean. Tolerance has now been redefined as this. You must accept me or you hate me. You must accept me or you're dangerous. You must accept me and agree with everything I believe or you're not just dangerous to me, you're dangerous to Canada and should you even have children, I wonder. Bow down to tolerance or else you threaten what Canada is. Everything is now shrouded in this thing called human rights. But we need to understand something today as followers of Jesus in this place, in this time. God has the final say on money. God has the final say on faith. God has the final say in religion. God has the final say in sexuality. God has the final say on power. God has the final say in relationships. God has the final say in entertainment. God has the final say on everything because he is God and none of us are like him. So the question is, can you ever disagree? Can you choose as a conscionable Christian not to obey? On rare occasions, when we have no choice left, we are called to obey God over government, God over culture, God over family, God over friends, and God over our own heart. When anyone tells us to violate a command of God, we respectfully, kindly disobey. And that is now we see. In large and small ways, we must be willing to suffer for the sake of God and his kingdom, even to the point of death. We must obey God in his word, and these three young adults demonstrate what that looks like. Listen to Jesus, the one we love and sing to and talk about all the time. Just listen to the strength of his words. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife and his children, brother or sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be a disciple, can't be a Christian. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now the context of this is so important. Jesus is saying your family, your life, your friends, even good families must come second to Jesus Christ. Everything must be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is not an excuse to be a jerk to your family. Well, I hate my kids because Jesus allowed me, so I'm just fine. No, 
Love your children. Love your mom and dad. Love your brother, sister, and friends. But if you have to make a choice between loving your mom and Jesus, you pick Jesus. If you actually have to say to your family, I love Jesus more than I love you, and they threaten you, you say, Jesus comes first. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Jesus, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Jesus Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and the spirit of God is resting on you. We are not just summoned or called into this amazing relationship with God where we're given eternal life and hope of resurrection and and purpose in life. We are also told to emulate the one we have met, including emulating his passion and suffering. Here's what we've got to re-embrace in the West. Suffering is part of an average Christian life. It's not a super moment. It's normal. And Jesus' suffering is the example for every single one of us. I mean, Peter was there day one when Jesus spoke the manifesto of our movement out, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus taught us about his kingdom. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you when people lie about you and slander you and don't tell the whole truth and shame you and mock you online. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's the question as we're gathering here today, wrestling this through. Where might you, as a genuine follower of Jesus in 2018, within GTA experience, where will you suffer? Where in Durham, where in Canada, where in your life, where in your family, might you as a good, loving, involved citizen still pay the price as a Christian and a Canadian? Well, you will begin to pay the price when you say God has the final say over personal choice, that truth is stronger than personal experience. Right when you say that, the fire grows. When you stand and actually believe and live and say that the biblical worldview is the true, true reality, the temperature rises. And what we need to understand, and this is so important for us, especially as Canadians, it doesn't matter how kind you will be, thoughtful, intellectual, informed, or loving, That will not matter anymore. It doesn't matter how rational you are anymore. You will be attacked, marginalized, mocked, and spit upon. And many of you, and we're not talking about this in the Canadian church, but we need to. Many of you in the next decade will face a decision. If you're a doctor, a dentist, a nurse, a teacher, just as some examples, you might have to lose your job because they are going to tell you that you must declare things that violate everything that you believe in. And in that moment, will you stand? You say, well, where am I going to suffer? I mean, Canada's a really nice place. Well, here's the first place. Every single one of us, within the sound of my voice, suffers by our own hand. We are all Nebuchadnezzar to ourselves. The Bible says our heart condemns us. And let's not have any games here. Every one of us likes sinning. We want to sin, and we want fun, safety, and fear over holiness, obedience, and loving God. What did Paul write in the middle of his life in Romans 7, 19? For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, I want to keep on doing. Anyone want to say amen to that? Because it's true. Yeah. Mm. This is not the verse you claim, but it's true. What a wretched man I am. 
Who's going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, we all want to sin. We want comfort over obedience. We want lust over love. We want greed over generosity. We say this is so bad. We actually want to sin. And half the time when we're being honest, we're like, I don't know if I want to obey Jesus. I don't know if I want to obey the Bible. Or I just want to do the thing I want to do. But God gives us the power to obey and reminds us about forgiveness. But the first place that you must not bow down to an idol, the first place that you must declare, I will not bow down, is to your own heart. When no one's looking, when no one's around, and you are alone, in that moment, that is where we start saying, Jesus is Lord and I love God more than my safety. I love God more than my lust. I love God more than my rights. I will choose Jesus because he taught me he has loved me, and I will love him in return because he's worthy of my worship. The first place that we say no to the great idol is us, but it goes beyond that. Second, you will stand in the fire more and more when you start standing in public. We believe as Christians all human beings are valuable and made in the image of God. Children in the womb are humans and they are to be protected and not murdered and killed. The elderly and disabled are valuable and must be protected. The scriptures are clear. Abortion and euthanasia according to the scriptures and God is murder. Does that mean you have to be a jerk about it? Does that mean if you've done that there's no forgiveness? No, but let us call sin, sin. Racism in all forms is evil, repugnant, and sinful. All grim immigrants and the poor are made in, in the image of God and must be helped, supported, and protected. God says he is close to the poor and God says murder is wrong. We stand for life, we stand for the poor, we stand for the displaced, and when we stand on God's truth, here's what will happen. Number one, you will be profoundly uncomfortable because you don't agree with what the Bible says, but even more so in our polarized culture where the left and the right have become so entrenched and hardened and hate each other, we are going to bother the left and the right, and that should be the way it is. Why? Because our kingdom is not of this earth. We are not Democrat or Republican or NDP or liberal or conservative. We are followers of Jesus Christ, and both the left and the right have good, but the left and the right also have profoundly declared evil is good, and we will stand and say no with kindness, with respect, without anger. That is sin, and we will not do that. We will not sacrifice Christian conviction or Christian compassion at any time. We will not bow down. We will not bow down. And this has to actually happen. This has to get into our hearts now because of the polarization in our culture. One tweeted this week, harm to the vulnerable begins not with violence, but with language to suddenly make people less humans. Unborn babies become fetuses, immigrants become invaders, the elderly become burdens. No, God sees valuable people for who they are. His image bears. You will be persecuted in Canada when you unashamedly declare the exclusive and unique work of Jesus Christ. When you say, rightly so, there is good elements of truth in all faith systems, and much of faith is helpful, but it is not ultimately true and cannot help salvifically, the fire will be turned up. Jesus himself declared in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Why? Because you've seen me. That's what Jesus is saying. 
How could Jesus be so bold, saying that not all religions, not all roads lead to heaven, but only him? And the answer is simple. Jesus isn't just a prophet. Jesus isn't just a priest. Jesus isn't just a profound religious leader. Jesus isn't just some sociological phenomena or, 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 or history maker or politician. Jesus is God in flesh, and the only one who can bring you back to God is God himself, because God's only strong enough to deal with the problem we have created. That's why Peter said boldly in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which you will be saved. You will be in the fire and attacked and shamed in our culture when you say that God is not only creator, but God is involved in his creation and he has designed the world and he has a right to say how the world runs. When you say that God is the inventor of gender and the giver of sexuality, when you say that God has sent boundaries about what is right and wrong, what is allowed and unallowed, you will be attacked and threatened and humiliated. We used to be a culture that was based on law and guilt. We now, through social media, have become a culture of humiliation and shame where whether it's true or not, you can destroy someone's reputation by what you say. The Bible is clear, but culture does not believe God has the final say on gender or sexuality or many other things. And many other religious leaders, including many in the name of Jesus, want to reach Babylon by becoming Babylon. But let me declare this morning with authority and in humility, you can never reach Babylon by becoming darkness. You never can be salt and light by embracing darkness. Someone who does that is like one who climbs up a tree, sits on a branch, and cuts off the branch they're sitting on and declares it safe. You will be attacked when you actually live out and believe what the scriptures say. You'll be attacked when you choose not to lie, steal, or gossip to get ahead. When your boss tells you to do something illegal or actually says, why don't you set up that person and I'll give them your job and I'll take the fall or we'll make sure they take the fall and you say no. You'll be in the fire when you stand and say no when, when not wanting to hurt others no to breaking the law, or no to destroying anyone's reputation. When you do not take up the weapon of gossip, the weapon of slander, and the weapon of lies in the workplace, people will think you're crazy. You will not get ahead in life. You will actually probably be demoted, but God will promote you later. You'll be in the fire when you love your enemies. No one will understand you when you forgive your abuser. No one will never understand you when you truly pray for those that have hurt you. When you turn the other cheek, both the right and left, do not understand, but we understand. You'll be in the fire when you choose not to go along with friends and family for what our culture calls fun. What did Paul say after outlining such profound moments of the love of God in the book of Ephesians? Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. What's debauchery? Debauchery is wild living that leads to pain and suffering. It has never been God's will, and it will never be okay for a follower of Jesus to get drunk, buzzed, high, or stoned. It doesn't matter that things are legal or illegal. Whether life is monotonous, you want to escape, you want to feel, or you want to have courage, God has said that the days of evil, and one of the expressions of evil and sin, is when something controls you that is not his spirit. Do not give in. Stand in the fire and say no to your own heart and to those around you because you love God and know his love is better, more fulfilling, and you know that debauchery only leads to pain for your family and friends in the end. See, in this massive time of rage and anger and division and polarization, 
we must now make the decision at this moment as, as confessional, historic followers of Jesus Christ that we will not bow to the religious or political left and we will not bow to the fundamentalist religious right nor the political right. God has declared that his son is Lord and nothing else. We will not compromise on our Christian convictions. We will not compromise on Christian compassion and to the world of politics and the world of social media, convictions and compassions that seem to contradict each other cannot be in the same space. But we're fine with mystery because we worship Jesus and we've got a Trinitarian God. So we're just gonna do it anyway. It was John Calvin that simply pointed out he saved them in the fire. He did not save them from the fire. There's an amazing African statement that goes like this. The lion does not turn back in fear when it hears dogs barking. The lion does not turn back in fear when it hears dogs barking. In other words, God who is our lion has spoken and we cannot cower in fear as many people bark and nip and threaten. God give us the courage to stand on our convictions that are from him, through him, by him, and for him. If you want to understand this stand that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did so profoundly, just listen to the words of Jesus, the Jesus we sing to and love and have given our life to. Here's some of the very rarely read words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those C4 who can kill your body but can't take your soul. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both your soul and body in hell. Understand that God is God and we are not. Understand that he has loved us and revealed and elected us and he's saved us and he's shown us that God is not just holy but he's loved through Jesus and we have the spirit. We have hope the world does not have but we cannot, we cannot look like our culture when our culture declares evil good. In the time of Noah, Noah said, I will build a a boat and everyone laughed at him but he built it and then the flood came. The decision before us is simple at this moment. Most of us in Canada never thought this would be our place or our moment, but it is. We must, as good citizens who love Jesus, make the decision to say no to ourselves and no to our government and family and friends at any moment where our God is reduced to something he is not. And yet when we say something like this, the first thing that pops into my very upper middle class experience is this, I'm afraid and I don't want to suffer. And so at this moment when we don't want to suffer and it's so fearful, here's what this passage does so beautifully for us. It reminds us that we're not alone. God is with us in the middle of change, in the middle of a growing apathetic apathetic, hostile culture. When you choose to obey God and stand with the right attitude, Jesus will be in the furnace right beside you. This is the promise that he started at Christmas. What did Isaiah the prophet predict that we will sing about in a few weeks at Christmas? Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and the virgin will be a child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Not in a storybook way, not in mythology, not in allegory, not in fiction. Jesus who came fully revealed who God is. He is the evidence and he is God himself shown to us. And we who are Christians are not alone for Jesus lived, died and rose again and ascended to heaven and he sent the comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls it, calls him the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Christ lives in us. Jesus through his Spirit is with you right now. Do you, do you believe that today? 
He's with you in your sickness. He's with you when you're in the hospital. He's with you in the loss. He's with you in the shaming issues. He's with you in stress. He's with you with family troubles. He's with you when you're clinically depressed. He's with you in great times, fun times, worrying times, difficult times, and now the coming dangerous times none of us want. He's with you when your family will not agree with with you anymore and is ashamed that you have become a Christian. He's with you in the classroom, and some of you as teachers know this is happening. No matter how kind, intellectually engaged you are, more and more it is becoming difficult to be a Christian and stay within the school system and believe what you believe. Jesus is with you with your principal. Jesus is with you in the classroom. Jesus is with you in the office when you're being told to get involved in debauchery or lie or steal. He's with you online. He's with you when you travel. He's with you when your heart wants to sin and you're not sure what to do. He's with you when you're scared. He's with you when you feel threatened. He's with you in the middle of those moments where actually you might actually have to suffer now as a Christian. But in that moment, if you have to suffer, and it's shocking that you might have to, in that moment where someone is mocking you, or you've just learned some terrible news, or you might lose your job, or fill in the blank, close your eyes and picture Jesus in the room with you. And since he is living, you ask him, Jesus, what do you say? And here's what my Lord will say to you, because he's your Lord too. I am with you. Blessed are you when you are insulted for me. For great is your reward when I come back. You may be insulted now, but when I return, you will be given blessings that make this suffering look like nothing. This is such an incredible moment. But in the end, to persevere and make the decision where when bridges are burned, not by us, but now on the other side. Never forget the end. If you have to suffer for Jesus, remember Jesus is not just with you now, but remember actually what the church fathers used to speak out of Daniel 3. They said this was a coming picture of resurrection. Resurrection is why we get to keep going. Jesus promises he will never leave you or forsake you. That is true at every stage of life. It's true just before you die, and it will be true right after you die. But we do not need to fear, for our lives are infused with hope, and we have been told, and we know because Jesus' resurrection is true, that we will be transformed, resurrected, and restored. Jesus is going to judge us when we die, but Jesus is also going to judge our culture and judge every single person who's made Christians suffer. Jesus will reward you for your faithfulness. Jesus is going to remove every burn, every bit of smoke, and loss. Listen to these profound, hope-infused, loving words in Romans 6-5. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a physical resurrection like his. You if you are a follower of Jesus today, will be raised from the dead. And when Jesus raises you from the dead and gives you that new body and ushers you into the new heavens and the new earth, he will give you this precious thing called rest. We can suffer in small or large ways, but we know that this is not the end. And this is not all that matters. We will be raised unhurt and restored. The burns of this life and the smoke of this life will no longer be on us or in us. But in the middle, we choose to go into the fire because we love God more than our life. We love God more than ourselves. We love God more than our enemies. We love God more than our friends because we so have experienced the love of God. Why would we want not to give it back to him? At 39 years old, there was a pastor, many of you know only by name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was in 1945. The Americans were two days out, maybe three, from setting him free. He had led the church to resist Hitler. And two or three days before that moment of his freedom, the SS decided to murder him. And we actually have found the last words of a brother that you will meet one day in the resurrection. 
and this courageous, brilliant, intellectually bound, God-loving Christian, as he was about to be hung, said these words, this is the end for me, but it's the beginning of life. He understood that what he believed was not a cultural thing or an inherited thing or a family thing. He had met Jesus Christ and so experienced the love and power and beauty of Jesus. He wanted to love God and love his neighbor in a way that made no sense. So if you'd be willing today, would you stand with me? And would you be willing to pray a prayer that says in this moment, we as Christians, full of love, hope, respect, and honor, will still be willing to suffer for Jesus. And can I tell you why it's worth suffering? It's not just because of rewards in heaven. Here's the one thing most people miss when they read this passage. Who got to hear the good news when they suffered? Nebuchadnezzar and every single official in Babylon. God uses our moments of suffering to become the place where we point our enemies to God and we find out that they might become our brothers and sisters too. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God of the church, God of Daniel, God of us, come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, number one, that you loved us and saved us, and you're a God of hope and resurrection, and you'll never leave us or forsake us. Thank you. Number two, thank you that you are with us in good times and bad times. Thank you that even at death we don't grieve like the world does because we have hope. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, the Bible says, that we were all enemies of you and you chose to love us anyways. Thank you. But here's what we're praying for. Lord, we are scared, we're confused, and none of us want to suffer in this room. But come Holy Spirit and help us. If we're called to suffer and say no to ourselves, no to our wants, our rights, our dreams, if you call us to suffer at the hands of our friends, our family, our government, our workplace, we say to you now, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will obey. And not only will we obey Jesus and suffer for his kingdom, our prayer is that it would lead to such great witness that the greatest and most intellectual and most profound and most powerful people in our nation will say, what do you have that we do not? And we will be able to point them to the loving, profound truth of Jesus Christ. Father and Son, don't just send the Holy Spirit on C4. Send the Holy Spirit and prepare the church for this coming moment across our country. From Victoria Island, all the way across, right, to Newfoundland, up and down, Yukon. Prepare the church to love God more than life. And use us in this moment, as you will, to bring renewal, revival, and awakening. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.